Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. I will lead the listeners in this way with this bit of information. This is a highly, we can all agree, the three of us, this is a highly controversial aspect of this case. Yes. And there is some proof to back up some of her statements, some of it uncorroborated, some of it challenged. I've seen some statements that portions of her accusations have been debunked. I've seen other statements that say, no, that's not true. So it's a little convoluted from everything I've seen, but I do believe, I do believe there's something there. And, um, I, I do get a little nervous with when we have the situations where, with the, I don't know if she was ever doing any of the hypnosis stuff because some it's been proven that sometimes the, these memories can be planted or manufactured a little bit. Um, or do we feel, do and, I, and I'm saying this even to myself, do the three of us feel comfortable naming any names here? If we don't, that's fine. Well, look, I mean, there's, you know, her interviews are on the internet. They're public knowledge. If They're people, public if, knowledge, so if they just, I got no problem. If people just <laughs> you know, know where to find them, correct. Yeah, so th- th- so we have this witness, and she she will be making claims you guys stop me when I get this wrong because I'm bound okay. to say something dumb at some point. The The White family is from California, correct? Correct. And she's claiming that she was sexually abused in California. Correct. And correct. when she's saying that they're, the abuse that was done to me and the way that John Benet Ramsey's bodies found in the basement of the Ramsey home mimics what was done to me, correct? Correct. She, she was very specific on I, the abuse she went through as a child mimics what happened to John Benet. And what way, we, what I'm we sorry. mean by what we mean by that is hands bound and some kind of 
breathing restraints, uh, restricting the breathing, whether it be choking or a garrot or it was, it was a garrot. That's what was used on Nancy. That, that, that's the woman's name was Nancy. Mm -hmm. She claimed that, you know, she was, you know, her, her history with the family, it's intergenerational abuse. It's, uh, a tragic story. I've seen cases like this prior, so it didn't shock me like it shocked some of the people that were handling her. Uh, you know, we're talking grandparents involved, parents, uncles, the whole family. And she would, uh, and the family had a, a trainer that would train these kids and her in particular, how to please adults sexually. And this guy's name was Mackie Boykin. And he was known as the family trainer. And if anybody is wants to dispute that, you can look it up. He's he not. This is absolute fact, and we know that because he's charged and pleads guilty to the charges. Yes. Now, eventually, what happens to Nancy is that she, and this happens over a period of many, many years to her. Mm-hmm. And what she tells the Boulder police is says, "Hey, look." Uh, a lot of, you know, they would have these parties where me and other kids would be abused and it, it would include a garage. And if we didn't do something correct, they would hit us on the head as punishment. And it would always happen around holidays because you had time to heal up from the wounds before you went back to school. Yeah, and I'm going to get into some pretty gross stuff here. So if anybody listening wants to wants to zoom ahead about a minute and a half, but so I'm going to go I'm going to go out of bounds here, but like so Ted Bundy, we would learn from Ted Bundy that he would he would oftentimes choke or strangle his victims as he's raping them because the restricting the breathing, the lack of air then causes the muscles in the body to do different things. Yes, and right. so he he did it for that man, for those reasons. What Nancy, our witness here, is saying is that the the garrot or the restricting of the breathing or the choking was a method that was taught or taught by the trainer, and and even taught to the abusers and the raper the rapist that when you when you choke the victim the child victim here it is in a way to simulate that they may be enjoying the act. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's exactly correct. It's the, the garrot is a sexual, uh, tortured device. While you, obviously you can't kill somebody with it. When a pedophile is using the garrot, you're trying to put your victim in this certain state, as you mentioned, and it borders between life and death. You want to, you want to, to the pedophile, hit that spot with the garage and that control where you can make the body, the muscles seize. And like you said, it makes uh, the victim kind of spasm, move around, and it makes them appear to be enjoying it. That's the that's the whole thing with the garage. Now, Mackie died. Mackie was an expert with the garage. He died in November of 96. So 
Nancy's claims is that this sex ring, that there was there was a connection between her family and people that her family knew to the Ramsey case. And she brought evidence of pictures and she made claims against Fleet White Sr. Fleet White Sr. being the father of Fleet White Jr., who was one of John Ramsey's best friends and whose house John Bonet was over, you know, the night that she died. Yes. And I believe her claim is that Fleet White Sr. was her godfather, godparent. Uh, I, I believe the connection is is that Nancy's mother, Gwen, that is Fleet White Sr.'s goddaughter. So okay. Nancy's mother is Fleet White Sr.'s goddaughter. And she brought pictures and she brought evidence that connects. You know, it connected the whites to this family. And, and, th- and yeah, and this pretty on the internet was extremely divisive at the time. It was, I can't, I can't tell you how ugly it became online. I tried to stay away from the online stuff, but for the short time I was on it, people either believed her or just said totally false. And they, they blamed everybody under the sun for this woman coming forward saying it's a money-making scheme there was just a million different things thrown at her. And, and I got to interview her, you know, for a time. And, and that's how I, you know, the, the, the attorney that represented her, his name was Lee Hill. They contacted him and told him the story. He went out there, interviewed her, found her, her story to be credible, came back home, came back to Boulder, and then Nancy and the therapist started receiving threats from her family and they panicked and they called Lee Hill and they said, we're coming to Boulder and we got to get this done. So she showed up and, and Lee took her to the police. Now, as for me and my brother, this was the witness we were looking for that we said would come forward if our theory was true that a sex ring of some kind was involved in this in John Bonet's death. So now I have to call Lee Hill because in our in the initial months of the case, looking into it, I was I, I interviewed a, a man, a doctor in the town called Bob McFarland. And he was a doctor that worked with a lot of runaways latchkey kids, uh, prostitutes in Boulder. And when we, and when I contacted him, he told me, he's like, you and your brother are the only people asking the right questions. I need you guys to come out here. And I was like, why can't you just go to the cops? And he's like, he goes, I got a line around the block of kids talking about child sexual abuse and they're terrified of the police. So this was our first taste of what we were dealing with with the Boulder Police Department. And for the next several weeks after that first phone call with Bob McFarlane, I told him, I said, if you want to give my number out, I had 
some of these kids call me almost every night for weeks and they were terrified. They were telling me about businesses being involved in Boulder and, you know, business in the front party in the back type stuff, child sexual abuse parties. They named a judge. They, they didn't name a judge. They told me a judge was involved, but they were absolutely terrified to deal with the Boulder police department. So now we go back. So this witness comes forward. Lee Hill is now representing this woman. By the time we find out, we're like, holy moly, this is the, this is the witness we were looking for. I got to call him and tell him, Hey, don't, you know, don't do anything with it. Just sit on her. So we can tell you what we were, you know, what we had planned with her. So it was kind of a forced phone call. And how that first phone call went, me and this attorney are still in contact all these years later. Uh, I asked him, I said, Mr. Hill, are you the attorney for the woman that came forward? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, let me let me guess. She suffers from disassociative issues, multiple personality disorder. She has uh, injuries you know, to her private areas and other areas. She's, uh, the abuse was ritualistic in nature, uh, multiple family members involved. This was stuff that nobody knew, but I knew because from working prior cases and that got his attention. And he was like, how do you know all this? And I'm like, that's not important right now. What's most important is that you do not bring her to the Boulder Police Department because they're not going to investigate her case properly. And then he told me he had already done so. And I said, Mr. Hill, two things are about to happen. One, you're going to watch as they do not properly investigate her claims. And then number two, you're going to watch if they can't discredit her, they will come after you. And that's exactly what happened. And I got to watch it play out over a period of the next two to three years how his life just disintegrated because of getting involved with that. Now, she came from the West Coast to Boulder because she was under duress. They were threatening her. So she came to Boulder to be hidden. But what does the Boulder police do? They contact the family out in California, tell tell them where she is. What, she, what she's doing, who what she's she, there with. Yeah, what, what the, you know, the whole plan. And Lee Hill, being an attorney, was like, are you guys out of your mind? She's supposed to be, we're trying to keep her safe. You're telling them what she's doing, where she is. What type of protocol is this? He was aghast that they were doing that. Well, they have no protocol. I mean, when when they got a phone call December 26, 1996, saying that there's been a kidnapping. Now, they don't go so far into the, they say there's a note been left. The first thing the cops do is they just pull up right into the driveway. Um, the the house could have been monitored if if that was a real kidnapping. There they had no idea, no protocol, no no nothing set into place, nothing put into place to, on how to handle that type of crime. And then you see with this situation, they're informing the people that could that could put her into danger, and it's. So to to be a little, I'll fill in some blanks here. We don't want to go too far down this road, but mm-hmm. to put it as simple as we can, we have a woman who is roughly the age of Fleet White Jr., correct? Roughly I about believe, the same age. 
I believe at the time she was in her mid thirties when she came forward. Okay. And so, so a little bit younger than fleet white junior, but she, some of her claims uh, are of sexual abuse, violent sexual abuse over the course of a, a long period of time that she says at times mimicked the way that John Bonet Ramsey's body is found in that basement. And she, her family has direct ties to the, the white family. And for anybody that's having a hard time putting this together, fleet white junior is very good friends at the time of the murder with John Ramsey and not just very good friends. He's with him with John Ramsey. When the body is discovered in the basement, he's at the Ramsey house. And then later John and fleet white would have a, a falling out and, and the friendship would be over. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a good way to sum it up. And one, let's get into Lee Hill just real quick and touch base on this just just a little bit. But one thing I thought that was very interesting is this this will kind of show uh, the disconnect with Boulder. I believe it was the, with the Boulder Police Department because Lee Hill at the time was representing an individual that was suing the tabloids for defamation of character because he was the tabloid was naming him as a suspect in the John Benet Ramsey murder. Was that, uh, miles? Yeah, that was Steven miles. And so Lee Hill is representing Steven miles. And for, so for that matter, he has to take a deposition, uh, with John Ramsey, correct? Correct. And at the time, Boulder Police Department are saying, we can't get this guy to talk to us. He's dodging us. He won't answer our questions. He won't sit down with us. And Lee Hill goes to Boulder and says, I got this this interview, this deposition with John Ramsey. Would you like to review it? And they go, nah, nah, we don't want to. We don't want to review it. The only person ever yeah, to ever get John under oath was Lee. It makes no sense. It <laughs> makes it's almost like what kind it's they it appeared to me that they didn't want to do any type of investigation outside of those four walls of that Ramsey home. Let me tell you how bad it, how bad it was uh, them not investigating. Now, just jumping in the timeline a little bit, you know, that I was in contact with Lou Smith. I mentioned that earlier for a period of years from about 2003 to about 2010. And we'll get hopefully we'll get to how I first got in touch with him. But uh, Lou would say all the time, there was no real investigation done. And as an example, me and several other people got together and we did a background check, you know, as deep as we could of Fleet White. We didn't find anything crazy, you know, a couple, you know, multiple social security numbers, but that happens some P.O. boxes in different places, you know, nothing, nothing earth shattering, you know, but we tried to give a timeline of, of his life and we sent it, I sent it to Lou and Lou takes a couple of days, calls me back and he said, oh, he goes, this background check on fleet was tremendous. Do you mind if I take it and share it with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation? And I'm like, you can do whatever you want with it. We sent it to you, you know, to help. You know, and I, at this point, Lou Smith is no longer working the case because he had quit. You know, you know that's a different part of the story. So this is 2003. Yeah. Lou's still working the case. 
And he's like, Frank, he goes, that is the deepest background check, he goes, ever done on Fleet White. And it wasn't that deep. And I'm like, are you to tell me that hardly any background check was done? And he's like, correct. He goes, so when I say that there was no real investigation, there was no real investigation. And that's just a small example of it. Nobody even really did a background check at the person whose house John Benet Ramsey was at the night she died. And who was basically riding shotgun when the dad finds the body. And a matter of fact, Fleet looked inside the wine cellar. Yep. Says he didn't turn on the light and that's why he didn't see the body. Exactly. It was. But then later, later he says he throws John under the bus and says, well, John yelled or screamed that he found the body before he even turned, before he turned on the light, the, implying that John already knew that, that John Benet was there before he saw her or would see her because the light was still off. Now let's, let's steer this conversation a little away from, from the whites and from the Ramseys for sure. a minute, because when I was reading presumed guilty, I nearly fell out of my chair when I got to this part because I thought, holy hell, only in this John Benet Ramsey case would something like this even be possible. I'm reading about your guys' investigation, and Stephen Singular says that you guys had a great lead somewhere in Florida, but that lead quickly dried up when it when the individual was struck by lightning and killed. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, yeah, it's that, sad, but I, but I mean, I, I, I was, pardon the pun here. I was, I was beyond shocked and damn near fell out of my chair when I read that. I thought only in the John Benet Ramsey case would something like that happen—a possible lead gone because of the the very rare occurrence of somebody being struck by lightning. Can, can you fill in the blanks for me? I'm dying to know what what's going on there some details about that. okay so just to just recap briefly 97 we come up with the sex ring theory we're looking for a witness three years later that witness comes forward so we've achieved that the last part that i kind of blanked out on which i apologize for the other thing that we tried to achieve was we said that if we did our best and we found the the right sources, we would eventually find another case or another scandal that connects the Ramsey players to it. Because we always viewed it as this case is unsolvable. It's been botched from Jump Street. We believe, you know, the narrative that it's the Keystone Cops, we believe some things... You can only botch some things until it starts looking like it's on purpose. So we we said there's no way to solve this case by the case itself, what we call in the weeds. So we said if we keep going down our angle, we'll eventually find another case that connects. So we thought when we found the witness, that was the first big break. Okay. And then the Boulder police end the investigation saying pretty much that her story doesn't connect to the Ramsey case, but that her California stories prior to the Ramsey murder should be investigated by 
other authorities like the FBI. So that ends the Nancy thing. So I contact a reporter at the Boulder Daily Camera named Christopher Anderson, and we're discussing Nancy. He is not a believer in Nancy. We agree to disagree on Nancy, which is fine. Chris was pretty good with that. And he asked me exactly what my theory of the case was. And again, I told him, I said, my brother and I believe that, you know, there was most likely a sex ring of wealthy people and others in this town. Somehow the Ramseys got involved, maybe didn't know exactly what they were getting involved with, maybe. And the kid died. And Christopher kind of went, huh? And I said, what? And he's like, this reminds me, he goes, your theory reminds me of something. And we, and I said, what? And he's like, in the early 90s, there was a bunch of wealthy people in Boulder that got picked up. And it got hushed up and kind of put under, you know, kicked under the rug. So Christopher Anderson's like, how about we do an article? He goes, I'll give you a byline. So I was thrilled. And it was going to be about the Ramsey case and maybe what was going on in Boulder's past had something to do with how the kid died. Maybe these people that got picked up in the early 90s. So I was all for it. I was ecstatic. I'm like, finally, I'm going to get a, you know, a journalist to you know, write an article. This is going to, you know, this is going to be in the news. People are going to pay attention to what the hell we've been talking about. And I asked him, I said, how sure are you of these names that you're talking about? And he goes, the Boulder police had a list. He goes, I know exactly where that list is. And I'm like, how do you know this? And he's like, I used, he goes, when I first started, I was the beat reporter for the Boulder police. And the person whose place that he took as the beat reporter was the one that told him about this list. So I said, okay. And he could tell I was getting really excited. As you can tell, Nick, I tend to get excited from time to time. And he was like, just calm down. Give me a few days. He goes, the list isn't going anywhere. I know exactly where it is. So I would pretty much call him every two days. We're still doing this, right? He's like, yep, we're still going to do it. I said, the list is still there. He's like, yep, don't worry. He goes, and then I bought that maybe the fourth day, fifth day, I called him and he's like, look, Frank, he goes, don't panic. He goes, everything's fine. I'm going on vacation down to Florida. When I come back, we're going to do it. I'm like, awesome. I can't wait to get these names on the list. Me and my brother can start digging into it. And then I get a phone call a day or two later telling me to pay attention to uh, a death in Florida. Christopher Anderson got on a plane, landed in Florida, went to the place he was staying to change and hit the beach, went to the beach and got hit by lightning and was killed. Yeah. When it's your time, it's your time, right? And that was absolutely devastating. I'm like, okay, you know, maybe this is, maybe this is never going to happen. 
this is, you know, we're never going to be able to break through with our information or get people to, to, you know, take us serious because, I mean, you can't explain it. It was almost like, you know, God saying, nope, this, I do not want this South. Not yet anyway. So that's, that's the Christopher Anderson story. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer. Thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart protein plus and keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. 
with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I mean, just when you think a case can't get any more crazy or, or weird or out of bounds, there we go. Now, so this, one of the most interesting things that you guys ever informed me about was the JonBenet Ramsey tip line, right? After the murder, call in. If you know anything, if you saw anything, if you heard anything, we, we need tips, and later, Lou would would tell the Lou Spit would tell the papers, and I'm glad that he did. That you know, there's like th- three thousand or so tips come in, and he says from every document he reviewed, it, it appeared that the Boulder Police Department did not follow up on 95 percent of the tips coming in. But there was one tip that you guys were really interested in, and and an angle of the case that I had never heard of before. And I want you to tell everybody about that tip if you feel comfortable doing so. Uh, yeah, we yeah we yeah, we we can do that. Um, do you mind, Nick, if we kind of backtrack a little because we have to, it, this part's got got to be kind of told in order because this like the tip line works with other things, but it's not in the proper order. Is that okay? You you you're the one that informed me about this information, so you tell it how you see fit. As I had mentioned, uh, the attorney, Lee Hill, after he represents Nancy uh, and goes to the Boulder police, as I had warned him about, they did not properly investigate her claims and his life fell apart. And it got to the point where he said he needed to leave the country, which he did circa around 2003. But before he left, he told me he was sending me some items. Some of it had to do with Nancy. Uh, he sent other people information as well. So I received the package from Lee Hill. And in it is a poem. And it's called, well, there is no name. And when, I, uh, when Lee called me from Asia, and I said, what's up with this poem? And he was like, hey, look, he goes, I received a couple of poems in my mailbox. Just 
try to get it to somebody you trust. He goes, because I think it's important. And this poem, I gave it the name, uh, the three men poem. Now, it's a little bit long. So, Nick, I don't know if you want me to read it or. I would love nothing more than for (laughs) you to read the poem right now. Okay. So, this is how the poem starts. This is not the author of the original poem. Recidivism is my only concern. You are the only one who has a copy of this. Please respect my anonymity. People who abuse children are terrorists too. In the spirit of Crazy Horse, it's all connected. And then the poem begins. The truth, uh, in his cocky reverie, the truth the three would carry to the steps of the authority to boast of their pernicious spree. But he did not know that I could see and therefore was not wary. For hidden in the rectory, protected by the church decree, he delved in child pornography, while elders profess not to see. His sister told them it could be he killed the child and honest she, his secret would not bury. They did not know he changed the key when police would come to query. So they broke and entered quietly, though he would claim illicitly. And so avoiding calumny, a grand sum he was paid to flee. And so it was conveniently, their questions he would parry. To solve a tale of misconstrue, just look into the Offman's pew. You'll find there in Fort Lupton's slough, stray cats aplenty, skinned a few. On prying stoops their hides did strew, and cat's blood will scare daughters too. While bish bushes hid their sins from view, Richard held the cue. The child must die, he did decide. The crime arranged, the ritual plied. With church at stake and family pride, three men he chose to enter. Though two decried this church a lie, their testimony was denied. With ties that run both deep and wide, no one could defend her. Now some have gone and some have stayed, class defined the roles they played. Someday you'll know the masquerade of Zach, the great pretender. And then it mentions the three men and gives three names. So this is the poem I received from Lee Hill. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what to do with it. I'm kind (laughs) of just, right, right. you know, I'm like, okay, this is the Ramsey, you know, this is the Ramsey case. A lot of crazy people out there. Anybody could have written this, but it was written in such a way that I kept going over it. And when it mentions the three names, one I had never heard of before in regard yeah. to the Ramsey case. Two is a very popular name that everybody would know. And then the third was a little known name that I had I had recollected I had heard before. But still, most people would not know the name. So I read this poem, as I'm doing now, 
to somebody that's in Colorado and they said, hey, you know, do you mind if I tell somebody what you just uh, what you just read me? And I'm like, sure. And they're like, okay, give it. I'll get back to you in a couple of days. Two days later, I get a phone call from Lou Smith. I had never contacted Lou before, but yet he's calling me because of this poem and he's pleading with me for me to give it to him. That's when I knew that there was something special about this poem and especially these three names. For why would Lou beg me the way he was in the first phone call? And that was the start of our relationship, was this poem. And Lou was desperate to find out who wrote it. Now, all we had to go with was envelopes, which I think I think Lee lost the envelopes, but they came with Denver postmarks. And they were addressed weird, right? Like it was the the the, uh, the return address was uh, for the children. That was the only return address to go off. So the return address was for the children. It was addressed to Lee Hill, and inside was this poem. So we had pretty much the entire city of Denver. That's all we had to go on. So eventually, Lou said, you know what, Frank? It's going to be impossible for us to figure this out. We might as well stop. And I said, and you know what? In retrospect, he was right, and I was wrong. Well, it wasn't his first rodeo. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, well, I wanted, to, I, I told him and I argued with him. I said, Lou, I said, you have a copy and I got a copy. Yeah. I said, Lou wanted to keep it under wraps. But I, I told Lou, I said, Lou, the person knows the case. Because when you break down this poem, you're talking about something going on at the church. Yep. And when you go down a few stanzas to solve a tale of misconstrue, look into the Offman's pew, you'll find there in Fort Lumpton slew stray cats of plenty skinned a few on prying stoops their hide their hides did strew. That's referring to Steve Thomas. He wrote he even wrote it in his book that uh, a mutilated cat was thrown on his lawn and cat's blood will scare daughters too. That's referring to Linda Arndt. She had cat's blood thrown on her door. The only, now most people, some people know this. If you know Thomas's book, I remember this when it happened. Yeah. There were three things that happened. The cat thrown on Thomas's lawn, Linda Arndt, had blood thrown on her door and Sergeant Whitson had bullets fired into his living room window. These are three important players on the police side. Steve being one of the lead detectives, Linda Arndt, who was there when the body was found. Yeah. For an uncomfortably long period of time by herself, mind you. And and mind you, she asked for help multiple times and did not get it. 
called for help multiple times and they just ignored her calls. I, and, and, you know, she's somebody that kind of gets thrown under the bus. And I think the public has been a little impolite to Linda Arndt. Um, has she said some strange things over the years? Yes, a couple, but we pointed this out in our six part series years ago. I couldn't, I, I have some, knowledge on on police work and how it's supposed to work and and for her to call that in and and re- that one she should have never been left there with that number of people by herself anyway yeah. uh, especially if it, it appears at the time that they are working it as the note as the letter presents itself to be that there is an abduction and possibly seeking a ransom and yet they leave her alone when a ransom call could come in at any minute with all these people and they don't even really fully know what's going on yet. And she's calling in for help and they leave her out there high and dry. And I've, I've, so I've always been a little upset about some of the public ridicule of her over the years, because I think she was put in a compromising position in an unprofessional and, and position and in a position that none of us should be put in and then ridiculed for her behavior or her observations later, which I just think is she was treated unfairly on the day after Christmas, 1996 and, and still to this day a, treated a little unfair uh, since then. And, oh, I'm in total agreement. I mean, her life was destroyed because of this case. You know, and don't don't forget, she then sues her own department where during that trial, you know, she she talks about being threatened by people within her own department. Yep. So it's yeah, she, she got thrown under the bus, just like many people. Many people have suffered because of this case. Many. Stephen Miles. Why his name was mentioned, whether it came from the Ramsey camp the cops. Why Steven? He was a guy that, a photographer, artsy guy, extremely nice man. I worked him as a source for close to 20 years. Best source I ever had. He wanted nothing but to get to the truth of this case. And he helped me. He sacrificed friendships for me. And he just passed away last summer. And he wanted nothing more than for this case to be solved. But, you know, Lee Hill, his life destroyed. Uh, you know, Steve Thomas, whether you love him or whether you hate him, he loved being a cop. Yep. Had to walk away from it all. Yep. And it, it just goes on and on and on with this case. But and, uh, and I'm glad that you bring up Steve Thomas because, you know, there, there, there are a lot of things that I disagreed with him in this case when we did our first six part series. But one thing that I wasn't clear of is that he too was put in a tough position. And while his investigation didn't kind of go the way that I think maybe it should have gone. And I, I I don't know that he had the experience to handle such a complicated case like this. He made some very good observations, some, that that I think other detectives may not have been able to make. So he did, he did make some good efforts in this case. And, and, you know, so we, we should thank him for his work on the case as well. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, it, whether you agree or disagree with Thomas, the guy, you know, he he was pretty much a, a cop who tried and and just got disgusted with it all and walked away. Now, do I think, you know, him thinking Patsy did it? No. But but this case is you can't bl- <clears throat> excuse me, you can't blame some of the cops for thinking the Ramses were involved. I mean, it's just common sense. There are things that point to the Ramses. Let's face it, the body's in the house, the notepad is theirs, paintbrush is theirs. You can go on and on. So a lot of stuff points to them being involved in their daughter's murder, but yet the DNA doesn't match. So there's there's this huge there's this huge disconnect, but you can't blame the cops. You know, it's it's op, it's standard operating procedure. You got to look at the parents first. You have to. Oh, the statistics will tell you that the and this is something we've talked about on the show numerous times, but it's 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 always one social circle first that you have to look at in any homicide investigation because most homicides are person A gets angry at person B about something and they kill them in a fit of rage or on an accident don't you know they they intend to harm them but not kill them and so the overwhelming majority of homicides that's exactly what happens so you look at the social one social circle first well when we're talking about a child homicide the younger the victim, the smaller the social circle that they have. It's just the the way the world works, uh, the way that our the, the nature of our lives. And so, with a six year old victim, y- you have to look with inside those walls first. So, yes, of course. But what what with these poems, do we feel comfortable talking about the 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 tip that? interests me so much that came in in early 1997 uh, to the tip line? Well, I, I, have, I have to bring up the poem first because yeah. it, there, was like a, there was like a chain of events. Yeah, the background is very important. So we have this poem. I give it to Lou because Lou really wanted it. And I spent... Lou kind of gave up on figuring out who wrote it. He really wanted to know, but you know, it was it was almost impossible. So I keep trying. I tell Lou I'm not gonna stop. I'm gonna keep pushing, and maybe eventually we'll figure it out. Lou gets sick and passes away. Well, I believe it's in 2010. Maybe a year later, me and others are working to solve, you know, to figure out who wrote this. I brought this poem to colleges, had professors look at it and who, who were experts in poetry. And they were like, you know, this isn't some crazy person that's just writing this. You know, this person knows what they're doing when it comes to writing poems. They understand structure and poetic rhyme. This is, this is somebody who knows what they're doing when it comes to poetry. So, I'm trying to figure, you know, you start looking into that. And eventually I go to one of my trusted sources, Stephen Miles. And I said, Steve, you know anything? I asked him, you know anything about poems? And he was such an open guy. 
I could tell right away when he started stammering that he knew something. And I said, Steve, I said, I've been dealing with you for years now. I said, if you know anything about these poems, I said, man, you got to tell me. And he's like, yeah, I know about poems. He goes, I mailed one to Lee Hill. I was asked to. And I said, who? He said, a friend of mine, a member of St. John's Church. Now, there were two poems. I always thought there was one. Stephen Singular had another poem. We both thought we had the same poem. Yeah, and we never really discussed it. That was the part that not only confused you guys when it happened, but it, but it confused me because I'm reading his book and he he puts a portion, I believe, of the poem that he receives, and then later, you and Stephen at some point figure out that you've both received poems, but they're but they're actually different poems. Well, and like I said earlier, we kind of like. We didn't work on things together. The, the singulars are their own brand, you know, and me and my brother, we do our thing. And occasionally we would kind of bump into each other with information. This was one of those instance, uh, instances when he said he had a poem, I had a poem. And I said, oh, it's so you know about the three names, right? And he's like, my poem doesn't have any names. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, my poem's called the Manchurian Dao. And I'm like, what? So I I don't know if you want me to skip that part. Uh, I do have it here. If you want me to read it, Nick, if you think it's we should just continue on and get to the point that you're asking about the tip line, it's up to you. Uh, no, I like I want to hear the the and I think the listeners will want to hear the other poem as well. Okay, so attorney Lee Hill has mailed two poems that he received out. One is what we call the Three Men poem to me. And the Manchurian Dao poem was sent to author Stephen Singular. Stephen Miles was asked by somebody involved who's a member of St. John's Church to send one of these poems to him and asked Stephen Miles to go to Denver so it did not have a boulder postmark. So Stephen said he took a a bus to Denver and then dropped it in a mailbox. Mm -hmm. And that's how Hill got it. So the Manchurian Dao starts off. They say that innocence prevails and evil cannot master time and riches and fame and fortune. So some evil siege, which then will grow to devour their progenitors. Of thirty duos, some must know that they them out, that they themselves will out their crime and have. Within an old man's fleeting leer, the cycle of the dolls came round. It poisoned sick the world's yule cheer. They used their own in passing down. The rituals remain unfound. And Christmas break gives time to heal. Parties abound, all wounds congeal, but one. At blithely festive New Year's bash, some candidates en route stopped there, as if by feigning toasts and cheer, they could undo the fatal sash the week before. But handlers die, and what to do? With Christmas nigh, the one in lieu did err. 
St. John would roll over in his grave to know the smut that crossed his nave. Yet Christmas Day he held her near as if he knew she'd disappear that very night. An elder cleric's errant son, his extant crush now on the run, did they supply the candidates with fodder for their lewd e-fun. Do tell. Truth blazes in, but from McFar. The hunt team's snare was too adept, with keen eyes placed to guard the bar. The talk of dolls and silence kept. They tripped the truth while jurors prepped, then sacked the hunter as inept. But hunters now, the hunted are. Death's officer, perfidy, bared, though taints of roofs fast disappeared. No antidote this Snow White spared. The other signs were clearly there, yet all were hastily interred, and silky dressed and golden haired truth slept. Of one who died outstretched on high, most gentle hands his swaddle made, and in spokeral cloth she laid, nor twins replayed round captive limb. This mortal braid is our demise when angels perish in its vice. Betrayed by kindred's galling lies as purloined justice turned blind eyes, a panic lapse left unsurmised, clues carried home, already prone, sleep-guised. However, one must study greats, take, for example, William Yeats, who spoke about Byzantium. No governor could stop the run. Your split in planning took its toll. Your race spun out of control. Things fall apart. The Antichrist lurks in the head. It festers in the carnal eye, which takes young victims from their bed to suffer that and then to die. Now vacant half-glazed tears are shed from ambidextrous author's stead. One doll now grown hides in dread. Another Manchurian candidate is dead. So now we got two poems. Am I crazy, but does it feel like it's written by Nancy? Right. You would think because yes. it's, <laughs> there are there are references in in the Manchurian Dow right. to Nancy's there's, story. There's references to that the, the Christmas break is going to heal all wounds but one. That's right. right. And so the, the wound that may never heal could be the death of the child or could be the damage down below that is talked about. We don't need to get into that too much. Um, and then when, when we reference St. John's, of course there, that that's the intent is to talk about the, the church and that's the church that the Ramses attend. That's the church that a lot of their friends attend as well. Correct. Correct. Uh, John Fernie, the doctor, Dr. Francis Buff also a St. John's member, uh, very close confidant to John Ramsey was Reverend Holverstock, who was going to play a key role with these in the story of the poems and the, and, tip line, and the tip line that you mentioned. And before we go any further, go through the roster of names that were present at the Ramsey house. The, the morning after the morning, that John Bonet's body is discovered in the bot in the basement and which ones on that roster have direct relationship with the church. 
Okay, well, everybody that has a direct relationship. So let's start. John and Patsy, their church. John Bonet, the victim, she attended that church. The ransom note said, don't call anybody or we'll behead your child. So what do they do? They call people immediately. Fleet White, accusations. He doesn't go to St. John's, but he's called. John and Barbara Fernie, big players at St. John's Church. They're called to the house. Reverend Hoverstock, he also comes over. Those are your key players. And then when Patsy is taken to John Fernie's house after, you know, the body's found, she goes to John Fernie's house. They take her there. That's when the doctor heavily medicates her. Now, people always say, you know, she had a whole bunch of doctors, you know, cancer doctors. Why call the pediatrician to be the one? Huh? I guess she was close to him because he was a church member. You know, and then she is heavily drugged at John Fernie's house. So those are your key players. And now, look, there were a ton of people there. You know, social services had a bunch of people there. I think other church members showed up and everybody was cleaning. That's how they kept busy, wiping down the kitchen. <laughs> so, yeah. Now. You can't blame Linda Arndt because, like you said, you know, they were going under the the idea this was a kidnapping. But right. Linda Arndt could tell that things were just going out of control there. Well, she's and trying she, to corral them into the den or to the office area, and she can't keep, you know, it's like it's like herding cats. She can't keep everybody in there. Um, and and in her defense, as we already stated, she's left there alone without any help from, from her department. And an interesting note before, you know, before, uh, she was a, a detective, uh, she worked sex crimes. So she would, she may have known about some of the stuff that we came across over the years, the names. I mean, we haven't, we've, we've talked about cases, we haven't even gone into a lot of it because, you know, he can't have us on for eight hours. But you know, the town had a problem. And we always said, you know, the answer is in the town. And like you mentioned, cops always look, they start from the inner circle, work their way outward. That's why we did the opposite. We said we can't look at it this way. We got to take it and from the outside and work our way in until we find something, another case or event that's separate from the Ramsey murder that brings in or connects other Ramsey players, that may be your only chance to solve this case because the first case was so botched, so bad that we believe that our way was the only way. So, you now have these two poems. I believe Steve, when, you know, Steve got excited when I told him about the three men poem, gave him the names. One name was a member of St. John's Church. Another, uh, this man we can mention for sure, John Rossi, 
It's a name that nobody ever heard of. And Jim, what do you think about the third name? Uh, well, the third name, um, third name was, uh, wasn't a suspect at one point, but okay. was, was we'll, just, we'll just say it now while this poem, it's just a poem. And this was the problem for me was it could have been written by anybody. It could have been written by an insane person, but it was lose importance. It was how he deemed it important and, and asking me for his help in finding out who wrote it, that these three names had to be important. So one was a member of St. John's church. The other guy's name was John Rossi. And the third was Mervyn Pugh. Now the poem, this is an accusation. So they're saying, so the, the writer of this poem is saying these three men were somehow involved in the murder of John Benet Ramsey. That's what the poem is making reference to. Correct. Yep. Okay. So we have that. Now we, so we have the, per, we have the two poems. We have the person who delivered one of the poems. I get the name of the writer of the poem. We contact her. There were others. I'm not sure if they want their names involved, so I'm just going to leave it out. But there were other people involved with helping me. It wasn't This wasn't just me and my brother at this point. But eventually, you know, Lee Hill came back from Asia to help us out to try to get this person to talk. And this person eventually did. And eventually... This person, who was a member of St. John's Church, admitted to writing the Manchurian Doll poem. They would not admit to writing the Three Men poem because you're naming names, you're making accusations, and you know there's some. When you start reading it and you start breaking down each stanza, there's some truth, you know that, that you. you, you there's some truth to it that you're about to see and you can understand why nobody would want to cop to writing it because there may be legal ramifications for what happened. Now, we continued our investigation with the poems and now the, the years are going by. So now you're talking, this was now, so now we have the writer the writer doesn't really want to cooperate, cooperated for a short time, but then backed away. Okay. So we keep digging. Jim, what would you, what would you say would be the next big break that we took after that? Well, just going back to uh, the names on the list real quick, just to state facts of the case, you know, alleging, you know, the allegations that are there. Mervyn Pugh also looked at as a suspect early on didn't receive a dna test and was eventually cleared according to the early dna tests so i just wanted to put that out there wait 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 wait. so he was cleared because the dna test but he was not he didn't have to submit dna is, is that what we're saying i'm confused for my understanding they were he was given a dna test they took his dna and he was cleared and he okay. was cleared Correct. Okay. Now, it, it, he has an interesting name here, right? Because it, Mervyn Pugh, 
Didn't one of the poems say something about Offman's pew? Yeah, it's that's the part where it says. And I, I mean, I I'm Catholic, so I know what a pew is. Yeah. Um, but uh, when you uh, break down the three men poem and right. you look at it carefully, the per the writer of this poem chose their words very specifically and wrote it in a certain way to give clues. Yeah. For example, a little. You know, to solve a tale of misconstrued, just look into the Offman's pew. It doesn't take rocket science to figure out Offman pew is a play on the last name Hoffman pew. You'll find there in Fort Lumpton's slough. Fort Lumpton is where they used to live at one point. Wait, Hoffman pew is the 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 cleaning lady, the uh, housekeeper. Yeah, and Mervyn Pugh's her husband. And and here's the thing. I've I actually found myself in a conversation about Mervyn Pugh and, and Hoffman Pugh uh uh just a few days ago. Somebody asking if if how well they were vetted. And we know they were questioned very quickly because Patsy points the police in the direction of Hoffman Pugh because she had asked to borrow some money. And they even had Hoffman Pugh submit some handwriting samples. Now, and I'm going to ask you guys to confirm or or uh, or tell me that I'm just wrong here, but it's my guess, based off of my limited understanding of of these two individuals, that they I don't believe that they would be able to write the ransom letter do you agree with me on that uh yeah i i i would agree uh, there were some words and some terms and some phrases that were used in the ransom note that i don't know i i, I would if i had to make a wager i wouldn't bet that they could write that letter yeah no i i i agree with you i agree i i don't i don't think I think none of none of the three names mentioned in the poem are going to write that ransom letter. I, I agree. And not only was Mervyn Pugh excluded, the one name that is a member of St. John's Church, he was excluded. The person 19- that we've been advised, I want to be clear here with the, yes. the listeners so we can be candid. We've been advised not to say this individual's name. Correct? Yes, that's correct. correct. So uh, the, the individual who can't be named, trying to get his story about his DNA a little on the confusing side because I've been given multiple stories. First, I've been told, oh, yeah, cleared right away in 97. But then I start getting information that, well, maybe his DNA sample was improperly taken. So I'm told that. Then I'm told, oh, no, no, he was cleared in 2008. Then I'm told, oh, no, 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 he wasn't. So there's this confusion when it comes to this individual who's a member of the church about his DNA. There may have been, somebody may have screwed up once again, botched by the Boulder Police Department. And I'll say it again, when you start botching this much stuff, Sometimes it could be on purpose. I'm just saying that's how it appears because this case has been botched all the way through. 
And now you're telling me you can't take some people's DNA you can take right and maybe some people's DNA you take wrong. And to make it even worse, because everybody, especially today, everybody's got such high hopes. Ah, DNA, that's going to solve it. Finally, they got outside people looking. They got this cold case unit, DNA, DNA, DNA. Ollie Gray told me back in 2007 that he was going to start collecting certain people's DNA. Not going to mention their names, but big players in the case. Yeah. That you would assume have been excluded and were via DNA. And when I asked Ollie why he was doing that, he was like, yeah, there may be problems with uh, some people's DNA where, you know, we may have to do it again and do it right. So if you can't even trust who's been excluded, how are you going to solve this case via DNA? Some fascinating information and fascinating insights into Boulder, Colorado. We want to know, we want to hear from you. Please go to truecrimegarage.com. We have our blog there. Get involved in the conversation. We want to know what you think about these two poems that we've reviewed here this week. Join us back here in the garage for part three with the Zell Brothers. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't live. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader